Way City Church, located in Woodbridge, Virginia, is led by Pastor Marlon Yearwood and exists to reach the lost and disciple the believer. Good morning, Way City Church. My name is Ade Batsuli, and I am um, pleasured and honored to be with you today. I am the lead pastor of Thirst Church, and today I just get the honor of um, preaching with you. Me and your lead pastor, Marlon and Deborah Yearwood, Yearwood, are real good friends. I love them so much. We've been through this church planning journey together, so I've got to see everything go from ideas to meeting in the home to launching, and I got to be with you during your <clears throat> at your launch, and it was so amazing, and so I'm just so honored and thankful to be able to just share the Word of God with you while your pastors um, tend to their newborn child. Man, I just want to say how lucky you are to have such wonderful pastors and leaders. I know them personally, and if I was not planting my own church, then I would literally go and be a part of what God is doing at the Way City Church. I believe it's going to be remarkable, and I'm so thankful for a brother uh, in Christ like Marlon and uh, an assistant in Christ like Deborah, and our family loves them greatly. And so I'm excited today to be with you, and um, we're going to be in the Word of God. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 through 34. And um, if you want to, even as you're at home, you can go ahead and stand and we can read the Word of God together. That's something that I love to do is read the Word of God together um, standing. And so you can go ahead and do that. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 through 34. And let's read it together. It says, and I'm reading from the NIV version. It says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets, gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Paul says, I definitely cannot give you any praise in this matter. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For wherever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. 
And then Paul tells them, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But, I love in the word of God when it puts a but there. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, we are judged in this way by the Lord. We are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you shall all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. I know that was a lot of scripture to to read together, um, but I believe it's going to be good and that God's going to minister a word into our hearts today. Let us pray together before we continue in the ministry of the word. Father, I thank you. For the Way City Church, I thank you for your word that in times of uncertainty, in times of needing guidance and leadership, Father, that we can come to your word and seek after you, Father, and search after you. And you have promised to give us wisdom and to give us direction, Lord. So may your word speak into our hearts. May you remove all the distractions. May you soften the hardest of hearts, Father. And may everyone under the sound of my voice and who is hearing this word today, Lord, may you speak to us in such a powerful way that we leave um, this broadcast or we leave this podcast or we just leave hearing this word change different than how we were when we first um, heard it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So just to give you a little bit of um, information about who I am, once again, my name is Ade Basuli, the lead pastor of Third Church, and um, I have a good-sized family Um, My wife and I have been married for close to 10 years. Um, We're going to hit nine years in this this December. And we have four children. And so I have a 15-year-old named Jolie, 13-year-old Mijo, uh, 8-year-old named James, and a 1-year-old named Madeline. And we have a very loud house, as as you can imagine. And one thing about me having wonderful children and that are all different ages and I have two boys three I have two boys two girls and one thing about it is that they all have different personalities I mean my daughter Jolie she's quiet and then my son me Jose he's the adventurous type of guy the extrovert loves to be around people and they all have different personalities and the thing that we're always wrestling with is that amongst all of these different four these four different children that have different personalities is the tension of raising them up to be who God distinctively designed them to be and at the same time raising them up to be who God has called our family to be and it oftentimes presents attention because although my son Mijo is outgoing and my daughter Jolie is reserved, 
they all have this standard that we present as the Batsuli family that, hey, we never quit. No matter what happens, we never quit. And so Mijo's super adventurous, but he can get into something, and that flame can die out pretty quick. But when Jolie usually gets into something, she commits, but they both have these standards, although they're different, that, hey, as the Batsuli family, we never quit. And it causes tension. My son James, who's eight years old, He's very touchy, his love language, his physical touch. He's very loving, and he always loves to give hugs and kisses, and he's very tender, has a soft spirit. He's easier for, it's easier for him to cry than my son, Mijo. But we have this standard in the Batsuli household that, yes, James, we want you to be as loving as possible. Mijo, we want you to be strong as possible. But there's a standard in the Batsuli household that, as men, I want you to be strong and do the work. As we see David giving that, um, that commission to Solomon when he's about to hand off the kingdom of God, um, not the kingdom of God, he's about to hand off the, his ruler of, rulership of Israel to him. And so I had that standard with my boys, although that's so very different, the standard of being in the Batsuli family for them as males is like, hey, you got to be strong and do the work. Yes, you can be tender and be all that God has called you to be as yourself, James, but you still got to be strong and do the work. And Mijo, yes, this is you, you're adventurous, but you still got to be strong and do the work. And all of the time we see this tension between how do they be distinctly who God has called them to be, and at the same same time be distinctively who God has called us to be as a family. And I say that because in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I feel like Paul is speaking into that notion. You see, the Corinthian church was super diverse. I mean, you had the rich and the poor. You had people who were slaves and people who were free. You had women who used to be priests of a pagan God, but then you also had men who thought they were gods. You had Jewish people and Gentiles, and all of these different people are in one church. And they all are distinctively them in their own ways. And they're figuring out how do we come together and be this church when so many things in life makes us different. The rich people have their friends that they hang out with. The poor people have their friends that they hang out with. The slaves will often serve during the gatherings, and they had their own um, things that they did. And they're trying to figure out in the midst of this, if I'm a rich person, do I just abandon all my friends because I'm a Christian now, and do I just go hang out with those who are um, poor? Or if I'm a slave, does that mean do I remain a slave in my newfound faith or Am I set free? Am I, am I supposed to hang out with those who own me as a slave now? We have this in our churches today. Like, hey, if I grew up in the South and grew up on hymns, do I now, because I um, enter into a church that's multicultural, do I now listen to gospel music? We, we all have this thing of how do I distinctively be me at the same time, be distinctively Christian within the family of God. And there's this tension that we're wrestling with, and we're even wrestling with it today in our nation, in our country. How do I distinctively be me 
and at the same time distinctively be Christian. And Paul confronts the tension we all experience in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. And he starts off by saying, in the following directives, I have, prayed, have, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. He's saying, in the first place, I hear there's division among you, and part of me believes it because I know you. Then he goes on to say, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. The thing is, when we identify first with what makes us different, it often ends up creating division. You see, in the Corinthian church, the, the, um, the city of Corinth was, was very social, but at the same time, it was very separated. The rich lived with the rich, hung out with the rich. The poor lived with the poor, hung out with the poor. The social economic classes were very much split. The Gentiles were with the Gentiles only. It was mostly Gentiles in Corinth, but then the little bit of Jews that were there would just hang out with the Jews, and these different classes did not mix. They were separate. But then Paul comes and plants this church, and he plants this church that says both Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free are to come together and worship God together. And the church becomes the revolution for how to do life as one. So much that a writer said they had lifted women to her. The writer said this about the Corinthian church and how much they revolutionized doing life together. He said, they had lifted women to her rightful place, restored the dignity of labor, abolished beggary, and drawn the sting of slavery. The secret of the revolution is that the selfishness of race and class was forgotten in the supper of the Lord and a new basis for society found in love of the visible image of God and men for whom Christ died. The church became the actual picture of unity. The Corinthian church became the actual picture of unity, and everyone was coming under this one roof, worshiping and loving together, being brought together by the worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul right here is frustrated. Because the church is starting to choose what made them different over what made them one. Paul is frustrated because they're starting to choose what makes me uniquely different over what makes me one. To the point where he says, hey guys, when you come together, it doesn't make sense. It's not even worship anymore. It's not helping. He's saying, imagine this, you're coming together as a gathering, as a church that's worshiping one God, but you're divided. It's almost like I had a friend who was, said, uh, who was telling me about his parents, and he said, for the last 
10 years of his life while um, he was in school that his mom and dad literally lived in separate rooms. Like they did not sleep in the same room. They lived in separate rooms and that his mom and dad literally had separate values. But there was an expectation that they would, that the children would be unified. And he said it was impossible. Like Paul is saying that, like, how are you trying to be unified, but you're separating, separating from one another? He says it's so bad that when you come together, it's not even worship. He said you're doing more harm than good. It's devices. And there's a key that we see of what was causing this division. And it comes to us in verse, starting off in verse 20, he says, So then when you come together, when you come together, the Lord's Supper, he says, So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. Paul said, when you come together, in actuality, you're not coming together to praise God, to worship God. But in reality, you're coming just to fulfill your own selfish desires. You're eating privately, the rich eating with the rich. You see, what was happening in the Corinthian church at this time was that the rich will come early and because they had extra money, they'll bring a lot of the best food. Imagine they're coming with steaks. They're coming with filet mignon. They're coming with a lot of the best, the best foods. And they're coming early and they're eating with other rich people. But they're eating and they're drinking all of the food before the working class and the poor people can get there. Why? Because they are stuck at work trying to provide for their family. So by the time they get there, all of the best food is gone because it was potluck style. It wasn't just like a cracker and a waiver. No, they would have something called a love feast where everyone would bring food. And then there's a portion, there's a segment where you just separate the time for just the bread and the wine for the remembrance of the Lord. But by the time the poor people will arrive, all of the food will be gone. And Paul says, you're not doing this to glorify God. You're doing this for your own desires to fill your belly. They will leave nothing for the poor. And because of this divide, the poor couldn't go. The houses were but so big. So by the time the less fortunate would get there, they couldn't go and fellowship with those, their rich brothers and sisters, because they had already created their own fellowship. And so they would stay outside in the courtyard just amongst each other because they were fulfilling their own desires. And what happens is instead of the church being a revolution, it began to look like the rest of the world. Their gatherings began to look like every single other social gathering. And they allowed their differences to make them look like the world instead of allowing Christ to make the world look at them different. The problem with having a divided church is that it's antithetical to the notion of being one in Christ. How can you be a divided church? but claim that we are one in Christ. 
And Paul informs the church, this is just not about hanging out. There's a bigger thing here. It's about glorifying God. And you see Paul talk about this in verse 23. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. He's saying this doesn't, didn't come from me. I wasn't just teaching you to my best social practice, how to hang out with people, the top 10 steps of how to make friends. No, he said, this what didn't come from me. It came straight from the Lord. And all I did was pass it to you. I was just a vessel of bringing you what the Lord brought for me. Brought to me. Then he goes on and says, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And when we look at those passages, if we just take a look closer, in verse 24, he says, this is my body. And the reason we're taking this bread is because we're doing it in remembrance of Christ. He says, this is my blood. And the reason that we're drinking this wine is we're doing it in remembrance of Christ. And so what Paul is trying to point at here, church, is that when we're coming together, we're not doing any of these things because of our own desires, our own will, and our own volition. He says, when we're coming together with worship, it's all because of Christ. All of it should be glorifying Christ. All of it should be lifting up the name of Christ. And how do we get into a place where we're in a setting that is significantly, distinctively created to glorify Christ, but we end up glorifying ourselves, fulfilling our own desires. I believe it's because there's a heart problem. You see, the reason that we have to, the reason that we get to engage in the Lord's Supper and glorify Christ in this manner is because from the beginning, we have had a heart problem. From the beginning, since God created man and man did what was opposite of his, God's perfect will, we literally missed the mark and we feel it and know it day by day that no matter how much we try, no matter how hard we try, we constantly fall under the perfect standard, the perfect bar, God's excellence in our life. No matter how much we try to pursue excellence on our own, we fall short. And God, knowing that when we are in sin, we cannot be in relationship with him, we cannot be in his presence, he made a way for us to be reconciled back with him so that we can have relationship with him again. And the way he did that was by living a perfect life that we couldn't live, but then going and dying a death that was deserving of a thief, of a sinner, of someone who rebelled against God, all the things that we do. And he did that so that by dying a death he did not deserve, he could conquer death. And in three days he rose from the grave so that we may have life 
through him and by his sacrifice for our sins, we now get to have relationship with God again if we surrender our lives to Christ, confessing that he is Lord and believing in our heart that he is the son of God, died on the cross and rose from the grave in three days. And that is why we come together all to remember what he has done for us. And Paul is so appalled because he's saying you've taken something so faithful, you took in something so pure, you took in something so good, and you perverted it. And when we lose sight of what God has done for us, it just reveals our initial problem, which is our heart. We have a heart problem. To worship in a manner that thinks first about me is a heart problem. To identify with being rich or being poor or being black or being white or being Asian or being Republican or being Democratic or being independent before identifying with being a child of God is a heart problem. In the scriptures, they are literally taking the Lord's Supper just to get full. How do you elevate yourself above someone else when you literally worship a God who lowered himself to the form of a servant so that you may be elevated to the status of a son? How do you literally elevate yourself above other people when you worship a God who lowered himself so that you can have relationship with him? And the scripture says you and his sons be brothers and sisters in Christ almost equal. That's a heart problem. And Paul addresses this division. And he addresses this by commanding us to check our hearts. He doesn't just tell them, stop separating. He says, examine yourself. Go to verse 27. He says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Paul is telling them, look, Paul is telling them, examine yourself. The word examine in this in the scriptures means to test yourself, prove yourself. Show yourself to be approved. Before you come into this gathering, test yourself. Make sure that what you have in your heart is not only good with you, but is good with your brothers and sisters that you are coming into this gathering with. Paul says, examine yourself. Not for your standard. Not for yourself. But for your brothers and sisters around you. He says, examine yourself against the body of Christ. 
He says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without this discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. For, for if you don't examine yourself without discerning the body of Christ, looking at yourself, testing yourself, looking within and saying, what in me is a stumbling block for my brothers and sisters, then you eat and drink judgment on yourself. And then the verse that jumped out at me, that made me go, this was the word that God wants to speak at this time. Is verse 33. No, sorry, verse 31. It says, but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. If we were more discerning, if we would just look at ourselves more, if we would just focus on ourselves more, if we would stop and take a posture of inwardly looking at ourselves before we discern other people, if we would do more of that on ourselves, then we would not come under such judgment. The truth is, every problem I see traces back to the heart in me. Every problem that I see traces back to the heart in me. It's a heart problem. We would escape so much of the judgment that we face if we just sat and took a deeper look within ourselves. I remember one time, um, one of my pet peeves and things that I can't stand is having chap lips. And when I was in high school, um, my mom, she was the Avon lady, and I would get all my chapstick from her. And one time she got this new chapstick, and I just grabbed it. I was late, almost missed a bus. I just grabbed it, went to school, put it on. And then when I get to school, everyone's laughing, making fun of me. And I'm getting offended, like, what's wrong with you? And they're like, man, your lips, what's wrong with your lips? And then I was like, whatever. So I put more chapstick on, and everywhere I go, they keep laughing. They're like, ha, ha, and, and I'm like, man, why? I'm getting mad. I'm like, man, what's your problem? Why are you laughing at me? Why are you looking at me all funny? And then finally, something said, man, just go to the bathroom. And, and, and I look in the mirror, and the chapstick that my mom had gotten me, had given to me, was actually lip gloss. And it wasn't like lip gloss that just make your lips shiny. It was lip gloss that makes your lips white. And so the whole time, I'm thinking, like, yeah, I'm, my lips are being nice and moisturized. Actually, it was being, they were nice and white. And made me look weird. And I could not tell because I was not looking at myself. Instead, I was getting offended at everybody else because they was pointing something out at me. But I didn't take the time to look at myself and discern what was going on with me. And I believe the scriptures are saying we need to take the time, almost like a mirror, not by our own standards, but by the word of God and the Holy Spirit working within us, discern ourselves. Paul says, if you, he says in 31, but if you were more discerning, saying like, if you just grew in this area of discernment with regard to yourselves, 
Like if we just discern ourselves, if we just looked within a little bit more, then we would escape so much judgment. And it's better looking at myself, allowing the Holy Spirit to discipline me, than not looking at all and being condemned by God. It's better to look at myself and allow the Holy Spirit to discipline me than not looking at all and being condemned by God. Church, just imagine what would happen if we took the posture of just discerning ourselves a lot more. Imagine what would happen if we took the posture of discerning ourselves before we posted on Facebook. We may discover that I need to call before I post. Or we may discover I need to mourn with my brother or sister before I critique. We may discover I need to repent before I defend. Or I think the thing that Paul is getting at, because he's so frustrated that they focus, the Corinthian church were focusing on their unique differences than the thing that made them one, we probably will discover when we discern ourselves that the tension of how do I be distinctively me and distinctively Christian is that I first need to be distinctively Christian before anything else. I first need to be distinctively a follower of Christ before anything else. Jesus put it so plainly, so plainly and so boldly when he said, whoever follows me must hate his mother and father and love me more than them. Whoever follows me must hate brother and sister, must hate mother and father. If you don't, you're not equipped to follow me. What he was saying is all of me and nothing else. There's no both and. It's not I can be all that I want to be and I can be Christian. It's like, no, I can be fully a follower of Christ and everything else that comes with that to the glory of God. When we discern ourselves, we discover that I need to be distinctively Christian before anything else. Because every problem that I see is traces back to the heart within me. question is, where have you in your life placed your identity in this world before your identity in the kingdom of God? I sit and discern that. Where have you placed your identity in your life before your identity in the kingdom of God? If you're a follower of Christ, discern that. Lord, where, am I, where do I hold on to being so proud of a Southerner? Where do I hold on to being proud because I'm a Southerner more than I hold on to being proud because I'm a son or a daughter in Christ? How do I hold on to be, being proud of my affiliation more do I, than I hold on to being proud of being a new creation in Christ? then for those of you who are not followers of Jesus and you said this is not I'm not one of them I'm not distinctively Christian because I'm not one I want 
to invite you to surrender your life to Christ today. Because in all honesty, the tension in your life is there. But as you may be trying to be distinctively you and also distinctively please someone else, distinctively you and distinctively what the world wants you to be. And the only thing that can free you from the tension of trying to be all things at once is surrendering to the one who conquered it all and just being one thing for him. And that's a worshiper and a follower of Christ. And if you want to make the decision to surrender your life to Christ today, I invite you to pray with me. Jesus, pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I am a sinner in need of a savior. Lord, I try it all on my own and still not right. I still can't do right. And no matter how much I put my own effort and work and attempt to do the best that I can, I still fall short. Lord, I pray and ask that you will come into my life and I want to begin a relationship with you so that I can experience a life free from doing what others want me to do, a life free from being chained to the things of this world and experience a life that is where I follow you and commit my life to serving you for all the days of my life. Amen. If you just pray that prayer, I ask that you'll, at the end of this message, you'll put in the comments that, hey, I I just committed my life to Christ and I want to know more about Jesus. And I'm so happy for you if you just pray that prayer. I'm so thankful that you are entering into the family of God and just want you to know that the scripture says this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciled reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Thank you to Way City Church for allowing me to share with you. We'd love to hear from you. Visit us at thewaycitychurch.org.